You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll discuss the case of a young husband and father who was murdered in cold blood in a supermarket he managed in 1981. Shockingly, despite multiple arrests, the suspects in the case somehow slipped through the cracks and were never indicted. And over four decades later, the victim's family is still seeking justice. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting Patreon.com slash TheMurderMyFamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon may include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Robert Douglas Lamp II was born on September 17, 1953, in West Virginia, to parents Robert and Janice Lamp. He was one of six siblings, all boys. One of his brothers, Olin, is our guest in this episode. While in high school, Robert, or Robbie as he went by, was an accomplished baseball player who was scouted by pro baseball teams. It was his dream to play in the pros. He graduated from Hedgefield High School in 1971. When Robbie's parents divorced, and his mom found herself raising her six sons alone on a teacher's salary, Robbie pitched in and began working to bring money into the household in order to help his family survive. Along the way, an injury derailed Robbie's baseball dreams, and he was forced to look for another path for his future. It was while working to support his family that he began in a supermarket and worked various jobs, 
eventually working his way up the store manager. Robbie fell in love and married his wife Sharon in April 1975. They lived in Martinsburg, Virginia for a while, and then got an apartment in Ellicott City, Maryland in 1978. Their daughter Jennifer was born there that same year. Eventually, the young family decided to make their home in New Freedom, Pennsylvania, buying a home there in 1980. Robbie excelled in his career as manager of Grand Union Supermarket. In fact, he did such a great job that Grand Union asked him if he'd be willing to run a store in Hillendale, Silver Spring, Maryland, a store that was in need of a good manager. It was a good opportunity for Robbie, but it meant that he'd have to travel there frequently as opposed to uprooting his family and moving there. His young family had just settled in Pennsylvania, so Robbie decided to take on the task, traveling back and forth between Pennsylvania and Maryland. Once he got there, Robbie fit right in with his co-workers and got the store running smoothly by the spring of 1981. In March of that year, a Safeway store in Hillendale right up the road from Grand Union was robbed and one of the employees was shot. The incident was a reminder to Robbie that he and his team at the Grand Union needed to be vigilant. Robbie had been trained that if he or his store was ever robbed to cooperate and keep himself, his employees, and his customers safe. In an effort to achieve that security and feeling of safety, Robbie requested from corporate security for his store, but they weren't able to accommodate his request, and all that Robbie and his team could do was stay vigilant in case they found their store being robbed. Just before 9 p.m. on March 27, 1981, the unthinkable happened. The Grand Union store was robbed by three men. One man stayed outside as a lookout, and two others entered the store with guns. They immediately confronted the cashier at the register and the customer who was in the middle of checking out. It was a rather quiet night in the store, and the commotion caught the attention of Robbie, who was working in the back of the store, along with another employee, Tom Ponton. The pair walked up to the front of the store to see what was happening and were confronted by the robbers. All of the employees and customers were forced to lay down on the floor. Robbie's training kicked in, and he fully cooperated with the robbers. They told him to open the store's safes, and he complied. Robbie's goal was to give the men what they wanted and get them out of the store as fast as possible and keep everyone safe. After the men got what they wanted from the safe, Robbie was also forced to the ground. Tom Ponton was next to Robbie on the floor. You'll also hear from him in this episode as he recounts the events of that terrible night. Without warning or provocation, one of the gunmen opened fire. The shot struck Robbie in his back. The two robbers fled the store. It was an incident that seemed to have happened fast. The robbers were gone, but Robbie was laying on the floor dying. As you'll hear from Tom, at first he didn't even realize that Robbie had been shot. Sadly, Robbie died there on the floor of the Grand Union. But thanks in part to his actions, everyone else in the store was safe. Police were tasked with breaking the news to Robbie's family that he was dead. But before they even officially notified them, Robbie's brother Olin learned from a police contact he had that his brother was gone, killed in a senseless and violent act. Robbie's young wife, Sharon, was left to raise her and Robbie's daughter, Jennifer, alone. Sadly, Sharon never remarried, and Jennifer, who was very young when her father died, was forced to grow up without him in her life. Police began searching for the robbers who had killed Robbie in cold blood. Initially, it doesn't seem that they thought the robbery and murder was connected to the Safeway incident right up the street. But this changed by May 1981, when detectives linked the Grand Union and Safeway incidents to a third robbery that involved the shooting of a security guard and police officer. 
A Washington Post article detailed that 22-year-old Leroy Jenkins had been arrested in connection with Robbie's case and the Safeway incident. Another man, 25-year-old Jerome Dudley, was also in custody. It seemed as if justice was at hand for Robbie's family. But then, literally nothing, nothing happened. Olin wondered for years what had happened in his brother Robbie's case. Decades later, he eventually located and linked up with Tom Ponton, the Grand Union employee who was on the floor next to Robbie when he was killed. The two men forged an alliance to figure out what had become of the men who they thought decades before would be held accountable. In early 2023, Olin and Tom discovered that there was no record of either of the two suspects being indicted for Robbie's murder. It turns out they were arrested and charged, but never indicted and never convicted. And to date, no one's ever been indicted or convicted for Robbie's murder. A cold case unit reviewed Robbie's case file, but found nothing that would allow authorities to actively investigate the case or pursue charges. Montgomery County State's Attorney Office spokesperson, Lauren DeMarco, has confirmed that there isn't enough evidence today to charge anyone in the case. Jenkins passed away in the early 1990s, but Dudley is still alive. In an effort to get to the bottom of things, Olin and Tom filed FOIA requests and reached out to reporter Paul Wagner of NBC News 4 out of Washington, D.C. Paul tried to dig into just exactly what happened and how these two potential killers slipped through the cracks. He reached out to Dudley, the surviving suspect in the case, but he apparently had no interest in cooperating with their efforts to get answers. More than 40 years after the murder of Robbie Lamp, it seems as if his family is no closer to getting answers or justice. Robbie's daughter now has grown and has three children of her own who were never able to meet their grandfather. And as I mentioned earlier, she grew up without her dad in her life. It's still a mystery why Robbie Lamp had to die that day. He wasn't trying to play hero. He did exactly as he was instructed to do. He cooperated fully, but was shot in cold blood. If you happen to know anything about the murder of Robbie Lamp, I suggest you reach out to Paul Wagner at NBC News 4 in Washington, D.C., or contact the Robert Lamp murder, still unsolved after 42 years Facebook page, run by Robbie's brother Olin. As I mentioned earlier, you'll hear from both Robbie's brother Olin and Tom Ponton, who survived that terrible day in 1981. They talk about their efforts to get answers and justice after more than four decades. Those conversations are coming up in just a moment. I want to tell you about a true crime podcast that I think you'll really enjoy called Criminal Conduct. Criminal Conduct is an investigative true crime podcast hosted by John Taylor and Javier Leva. Each season of Criminal Conduct covers a new case. The latest season is about a possible murder, but this isn't your typical true crime story. In fact, the podcast starts where the story ends. A college student dies and a suspect is charged and convicted of first-degree felony murder. But instead of facing decades in prison, a judge throws out the jury's verdict and lets the convicted killer go free. If you like in-depth investigative podcasts, you'll love criminal conduct. John Taylor is a former Secret Service agent and private investigator, and Javier Leva is an investigative reporter and also hosts the Pretend Podcast. Check out Criminal Conduct today. You won't be disappointed. Subscribe and listen to all nine episodes of Criminal Conduct Season 4 wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, Alan, and thank you for coming on the Murder of My Family to discuss your brother Robert's case with us today. Thank you for having me, Mike. Glad to be uh, here. 
happy to ha have you here and you know, i know you're working to get the word out and so this case isn't forgotten your your brother's case is frustrating in a lot of ways and you know first off he was murdered in cold blood during a commission of a robbery he was cooperating fully during that robbery and then after he was killed the suspects in that case potential suspects slipped through the cracks and avoided justice through some uh, mysterious circumstances which we'll get into but before we get into all of that can you tell us a little bit about your brother what he was like maybe share some of your memories of him sure i'd be i'd be very happy to uh robbie is my oldest brother i'm a, a family of six brothers i'm number three and robbie was the oldest and uh robbie was a just a terrific guy you would be hard pressed to find anybody who could have ever said a bad word about him uh, great student in school national honor society three sport letterman in high school um was actually uh his best sport was baseball he was actually being scouted uh during his junior year uh pretty heavily by the pirates and the reds and the orioles and I came from a very small school, and if you were an athlete, you pretty much played all three sports. And back then, there were just three male sports, basketball, baseball, and football. And he was the quarterback on the football team. And uh, his uh, senior year in football, he blew out his knee, and uh, that pretty much ended any aspirations for baseball. He still played, but uh, wasn't quite the same. Um, he worked very early age, um, worked in the, in the grocery, uh, grocery business his entire life, started as a checker and eventually moved his way up to assistant manager and, and eventually became a manager at the store in which, um, uh, unfortunately where he was, he was fatally murdered in 1981. Uh, he was, he was, uh, married, very happily married. He had a, at the time of his death, he had a two and a half year old daughter, which loved it dearly and um, just a terrific guy, worked hard, um, uh, not only would be hard pressed to find someone say a bad word about him, he'd be hard pressed to find uh, him say a bad word about anyone else. Uh, just a just a just a good guy. I, I recount a, at the time of the funeral uh, as we were receiving friends and guests and things coming by giving their condolences i always remember this and has always stuck with me there was a classmate of his a lady this young lady and she came by and she was just struggling with her emotions and her words trying to say something and all she said was and it was so poignant to me that he was just a good guy and that's the way i've always i've always tried to describe him to people mike he was he was just a good guy and it, it sounds like he had a you know hard work ethic he you know he pivoted from the sports career he was hoping for but then he jumped into this grocery store uh career and, and worked his way up to to manager how long had he been working at, at that as a in that industry or at that store in particular before he was killed at that particular he had actually worked in the industry he worked during high school uh while he was a student um my mom was a single parent raised six boys and uh 
my brother was probably started working as a checker and then uh, cashier and probably starting as a sophomore in high school. And in fact, um, he, he helped, he helped while he was in high school. Uh, he helped support the family with his working. And um, so that tells you something about his, his character and his work ethic also. I believe he had been at the store in Silver Spring, Maryland for just less than a year, for just less than a year. He was actually living in Pennsylvania and was commuting to Silver Springs every day, which was about an hour and a half one way. So, um, wow. and he was a, his first, his first manager job, I believe was in, in Martinsburg, West Virginia. And then he, then he was transferred by the company down to Silver Spring because that store was kind of in trouble and they kind of sent him down there to, to uh, take care of things. So they, they maybe thought that he had some skills that would help that store. Yes. It, most you know. Did, did he have any thoughts, you know, maybe he would transfer closer to be closer so he didn't have to drive as much. Was he worried about not being home with the family? Uh, what, what thought did he give to going there uh, closer so he didn't have to make that ride every day? I think actually the thought was just the opposite for, for his family. Uh, where he was living, they had just bought a house, a nice little uh, starter home rancher uh, in New Freedom, Pennsylvania. And uh, the point to living there was so they weren't living in the city. Um, he would rather make the commute than have his, his wife and his daughter grow up um, in the city. He wanted them out in a more rural atmosphere. And so I uh, Maybe at some point, maybe they would have considered it. But I know that the, the reason they moved to where they were was specifically uh, so they wouldn't be living in the city. Okay, so he, he made that commitment to to drive that way just to keep them in an area that he thought was a good, safe area for them. He did exactly, Mike. Yeah. So I, I assume as a manager, as part of his training, your brother's probably trained in what to do if the store's ever robbed. And I, I think in most cases, most companies say cooperate, give them the money, do whatever they say. The, the priority is to get people out safe uh, at the end of the day. Um, do, do you know if he had that kind of training? And if so, had he ever had any kind of run-ins with any customers that were, you know, in the way of something, uh, you know, a confrontation or a, burglary anything like that before no not to my knowledge and i know that they were trained on that and as you as you said the the training was to comply comply completely um the store was open there was a customer in the store and and the health the health of the employees and the customers uh came first and to my knowledge he had never had a situation like that before now he was he was aware uh, there was a heightened sense of awareness that evening, Mike, because um, there had been an armed robbery just seven days before at a Safeway store about a mile away from his store. And the morning, the very morning of the day in which uh, his uh, robbery and murder took place, which was in the evening, that same morning, uh, just a couple blocks away, there was a, a store that was robbed uh, before, it's like 6.30 in the morning, I believe. 
and there was a security guard, a police officer were killed. Both of those were killed, and an assistant manager of the place was uh, very seriously wounded but survived. So he had a very heightened sense of awareness. Uh, my understanding is uh, that he had contacted Grand Union and had requested some uh, security, of which there was no security. And it wasn't uncommon back then, but there was no security in the in the in the store, and um, and uh, that that request was denied. So, um, to my knowledge, it had never happened before. But he was very aware of the possibility, especially that night. And unfortunately, um, he was correct. And and you mentioned no security. This that's a, a a time frame when there wasn't even many surveillance cameras, let alone actual security people in in the stores. Exactly. There there were no cameras in the store. And and just for listeners, uh, you know, I I'm not familiar with Grand Union stores. I'm I'm picturing them being sort of like a a shop right or a Pathmark or an A and P, a, a pretty big shopping store, department store for groceries and stuff. Not. We're not talking a little mom pa type shop here, correct? No, 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 not at all. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was a corporate. It was a corporate business, and at that particular time, it was, it was, yes, it was fairly large. They have since they were bought out by another by another chain, and uh, the name was changed. But at that particular time, yes, it was, it was, it was pretty well known, especially or at least. Uh, on the East Coast over here, Grand Union was a very common name as far as grocery stores go. So it, it, this night, this happened, March 27, 1981. Uh, how many people were in the store and, and what time of day was this? I'm assuming this was later in the evening. It it uh, the the suspects came to the store around around 830. And um, there were at the time that they entered, there was one cashier. There was one customer who was being checked out by that cashier at the time. I believe there was a person back in the, uh, the I believe the butcher back in the deli department. Um, he was in the back of the store. There was uh, another employee, Tom Ponton, uh, who was in the back of the store with my brother and I can't, they were doing something together back there. They may have been opening boxes, doing some, I'm not sure, but they were together. And uh, when they heard the commotion, that's when they came to the front of the store. So to my knowledge, there there would have been uh, one, two, three, four, five people in the store, not counting the suspects when they entered. Okay. So it was relatively quiet. It it sounds like a slow night. It's not very crowded. can you walk us through, as far as you understand, w- the events of that night? What exactly happened? Sure. Um, as I said, there was a there was a, a an older gentleman who was checking out with the one cashier, female cashier, and um, the first, to my knowledge, my understanding of the situation, there were three people involved. There was one in a car outside, uh, waiting. Uh, the first perpetrator entered the store and um, accosted the, the, the cashier, the checker, and the, the person who was checking out. 
he was he was carrying a handgun ordered them ordered the cashier to uh, empty the till which she did she complied she ordered the the customer to hand over his wallet and everything he had in his, in his pocket to which he did in the, uh, in the meantime the second person came in my brother and the other employee, Tom, were coming towards the front of the store. And the second perpetrator, who was also armed, ordered, ordered my brother to open a safe. There were two safes. There was one, there was one outside, believe it or not, outside the manager's office and one inside. Um, he was ordered to open both safes. Um, he complied. Uh, the Second perpetrator then ordered Tom and my brother to lay prone on the floor, um, proceeded to empty the contents of the second safe. At this point, according to the cashier's testimony, at this point, the first perpetrator then walked over towards where my brother was laying and Tom, and at that point, she believes that he was the one who actually fired and shot my brother in the back, at which point uh, they ran out. And prior to them leaving, the only thing that Tom said, and Tom was not injured, um, Tom heard the other person say to the one who fired, said, that was effing stupid. And then they, they ran out. And I would say within... I would say within 10 minutes, police arrived on the scene and it all happened, all happened very quickly, Mike. Uh, according to the police report, um, he was pronounced dead on the scene at 8.59 p.m. Hmm. Just a, a very tragic, uh, senseless crime, you know, for somebody that's cooperating to, to just execute him like that, just terrible I'm, I'm curious these these suspects were they wearing any kind of mask anything like that they were not they were not okay but as we mentioned there was no surveillance camera so the only people that could possibly id them were the people that were in the store um so your brother was pronounced dead at the scene your family i guess is alerted to this news you know his wife is alerted to this news. How did everyone take this this tragic, awful news that Robert was dead? It it, it was brutal. Um, we, uh, my brother's wife, was officially contacted by members of the Montgomery County Police Department a little bit before midnight that evening. Um, we found out. I was living at home. I was working. Um, I was a sports editor for a local newspaper. I was home. And uh, back at that time, there was a, one of the local Washington. We had the Washington News. It was uh, that was the news area, Washington, D.C. And there was the 10 o'clock news. And this was about 1030. The phone rang and I answered it. And it was my uncle. And my uncle had been watching the 10 o'clock news. We did not have it on at the time, but he just had this terrible thought because they had they had they had uh, covered the story in the ten o'clock news, and uh, he said I just have a terrible 
terrible feeling. He said he tried to call the store and he couldn't get through just to see if it was my brother's store. He just had a bad feeling. And so um, at 11 o'clock, I made sure we turned on the TV and the lead story was this violent crime. And it showed the front of the store and they had not, they were not releasing the name yet, but I can remember it showed the front of the store and it showed the, uh, basically the gurney being carried into the, into the ambulance with the, uh, with the body bag. And now obviously it's a very heightened sense of awareness for myself. My mom was there and my two younger brothers. I had a friend of mine who I knew who was a state trooper. So I called him and I explained the situation. I asked him if, if there's any way that he could, he could call and find out with Montgomery County, uh, the name of the victim. And about 30 minutes later, he called me back to confirm that, it, that it was my brother. And that's probably the worst thing I've ever had to do in my life was when I went in and I had to tell my mom who was, who was on the couch. And uh, it was it was um, just horrible, unbelievable grief and uh, shock. And uh, it was a it was a it was a bad night that night, Mike. Just terrible, terrible news to. To hear something like that and it just again so senseless because you know it's he was not resisting he was cooperating and and he was basically executed so your family's left to deal with this aftermath now you've got to make plans for final arrangements for for him now he has a, a young widow uh you know you have his daughter's going to grow up now without her her dad. Just a, a whirlwind of things that you've you've got to deal with. But it, at some point, were you asking questions like, "Okay, are there any suspects? What's going on in the investigation? Did police have any leads early on? What happened uh, as far as the investigation?" Well, we didn't. Just to fast forward, we didn't. We didn't hear anything. Ever and when I say we, I mean myself, my mom, uh, my sister-in-law, my older brother's wife. Once, once my brother's wife Sharon was notified of his death, that was the last contact we ever had. That was that was uh, precipitated by the, the police department. We never heard anything. So the only information we ever got was from phone calls that we tried to make, which we did. And yeah, it, it, you have to understand there was, <laughs> at that time, 1981, there's, there's no internet, there's no cell phones, there's no text messages, there's no email. Um, so we were at the mercy of, you know, calling and we did. Uh, I in particular called, my older brother called, <clears throat> excuse me, on several occasions. Originally, we were told we were told nothing but uh, the case is still under investigation. Case is still under investigation. And that's when we would be lucky enough to actually get a hold of someone uh, to speak to. <clears throat> the case was actually 
closed by arrest in October of 1981. Um, I can remember a couple months after that calling, actually, uh, it was a couple years after that. And I had called intermittently between then, but I would say probably about 19, maybe 1984, 1985. Um, the most information I got was the people that were arrested are in jail. They are incarcerated. So from our understanding, okay, well, I would have thought that we would have been informed of, of, the, of the court proceedings, the trial, but okay, they're, they're in jail. Um, at, least, at, least, at least there's some justice there. Well, fast forward, you know, 25 years later, uh, we find out that, in fact, the suspects in my brother's case had been in jail, but we found out that not only were they not convicted of my brother's crime, but that they were never even indicted. They were released. And that was that was a that was a real gut punch. Um, and so at which point Tom and I, who over the years have been kind of researching the case in itself, we, we went into turbo mode, filed FOIA requests, made <laughs> probably a hundred phone calls to the state's attorney's office, the Montgomery County police department. Uh, eventually my FOIA requests were honored. We were able to, uh, get a meeting with the state's attorney's office and the, the Montgomery County Police Department. And sure enough, there were no indictments. Uh, they had been arrested and convicted on other violent crimes and drug charges. And the further kick in the gut was that we found that of those three original suspects, one of them had died in 1993, but the other two, had already been released from prison. One was released in 2010 and the other was released in 2013. So our effort, my effort in particular at this point is, has been to uh, draw attention to the case, uh, have the case reopened, which it has been, and try and bring justice for my brother 42 years later. So, so much to unpack here because you've got, you know, I, I, and you mentioned, you know, it was 1981. So you, you, your contact methods weren't as great as they are today. You would basically leave a, a, a message on an answering machine and wait for someone to get back to you, I imagine. But, um, <laughs> but over the years to not have them reach out to you and say, okay, um, we have a suspect, we're, we're prosecuting them it's going to court would your family like to be you know come to the court proceedings for for you just to never get calls like that and then then find out sort of after the fact that there's suspects in jail um you're, you're thinking okay somehow we didn't get the notification but they're in jail that's the important thing but then you come to find out they're not in even in jail for your brother's murder um Exactly. I'm curious. They're they're in jail for something else. Was it a similar type crimes that they were in jail for? Uh, the 
of the three, one one went away and did a very long stint for uh, uh, drug charges, uh, distribution of heroin, I believe. Apparently, he was a very large drug dealer in the D.C. area. Uh, one of the other ones, who the one who supposedly died in 1993, uh, he was uh, he was charged and convicted on armed robbery. And the third person, the third person who was supposedly involved, or I shouldn't say supposedly, allegedly, uh, because he was never actually charged in my brother's case, but we believe the, the third person uh, was actually convicted as the shooter in the armed robbery of the Safeway store that occurred seven days prior to my my brother's murder all three of those murders uh all three of those crimes i should say were were connected mike the the safeway store uh robbery which occurred on the 21st the robbery of the and the murder in the w bell case which was in the morning of the 27th and then the grand union case where my brother was the manager of that evening uh, on the 27th. All three of those crimes were committed by what we believe to be, when I say we, myself and the police, were committed by the same loosely organized group of, of uh, criminals. And um, there was great emphasis placed on the W. Bell case because there was a police officer that was killed. And uh, they were able to they were able to get a conviction in that case. They got a conviction in the Safeway case. But in the case of my brother's murder, there was not even an indictment. And that's been kind of a gut punch also. Wow. So so it seems like logical suspects in the other cases to be connected to your brother's case, but just no, no link officially ever made. And I assume that the one person convicted in the other one's uh, is still in prison? No, he is. Uh, he he was released in 2014. Wow, he's and, out. and that was after a murder of a police officer, no less. Oh, oh, that one. I'm sorry. No, no, no. They were. Oh. Um, let me clarify. It's our belief that the three people who were involved in the Safeway case were also the same three involved in my brother's robbery and murder. The other case, the W. Bell, to our understanding, none of those, none of the people in the Safeway Grand Union case were involved in the W. Bell case, but they all knew each other and they all communicate with one another. In fact, they, they, they coordinated the dates at which and the times at which they were going to commit these crimes. Um, so the person who committed the crime at the W Bell, who killed the police officer, there were two of them. And the one has died in prison and the other uh, is serving a life without parole sentence. Uh, just a, it sounds like a very uh, ruthless group of uh, dangerous people. Um, and somehow your brother's case is the one that sort of slips through the cracks as not having anything uh you know, connected or, or followed up properly, uh, procedures done. 
I'm curious when you when you finally talked to the officials and called them out on this and said, "Hey, what happened here? What was the explanation? Why did they? What reason did they give you for sort of your brother's case just slipping through the cracks and not being tied to any of these these people?" Well, I have to tell you, Mike, that first of all, the people we met with, I met with, and Tom was with me. We met with the assistant chief of police from Montgomery County. We met with the um, we met with the the director of the major crimes division. We met with uh, a person in the cold case unit. We met with the uh, public information officer from the state's attorney's office, and we met with the assistant deputy state's attorney. And uh, none of them obviously were around. 40 years ago. And um, there were apologies all around. Um, the only thing, there just was not enough evidence. They have said, after going back and looking at the files, um, there wasn't enough evidence to get a, an indictment or a conviction. Um, and they have been learning about this as we have because the files were never converted to microfish or digitized. So the first challenge, Mike, was to actually find the files. It was in a it was in a you know, cardboard box in a room someplace, and it took them a long time to find it. And and to be very fair and honest, um, they have been they have been very they have been very helpful since our meeting. Um, they met with us for about three hours that day, answered every one of our questions. And, um, I have the sense, Mike, that, that they would love to, to solve this cold case and they are working on it. Um, but they're learning as they go also, because it was 40 some years ago and the principal players who were involved in the case four years ago, obviously have either died or have retired. From the force and that leads me to my next question so out of the handful of people in the store that saw the faces of these shooters because you mentioned they weren't wearing masks how many are, are still around to provide a description of the the people they saw that day the the gentleman the gentleman who uh who was checking out that evening he he has passed away the cashier and I should have mentioned earlier, um, one of the after after the first perpetrator who, who went to the went to the cashier, after he ordered her to empty the till, he ordered her and the customer to lie prone on the on the floor. Um, so they didn't actually they didn't actually see who fired the weapon, who fired the fatal shot that killed my brother, uh, Tom. Tom, who was uh, laying down beside my brother, as luck would have it, um, he wore glasses but didn't have them on at the time. So his his ability to recall the face was somewhat compromised as well, and uh, and that was it. Like we said, there were no there were no surveillance cameras at the time, and so there wasn't a lot in terms of physical evidence. Um, to go on at the crime scene, which has been one of the, which has been one of the real stumbling blocks in terms of trying to solve this thing over the years. 
just a, just a very frustrating case just all the way from beginning to to where it currently is and then you've got you know uh, a young daughter or your brother or your niece who grew up without her dad um his wife was left widowed i mean how have how have they coped with this tragedy i mean does his daughter she probably doesn't even remember your brother at this point she doesn't and she 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 longs for information about him and um during my during my investigation and what i've done i've i've tried to keep her up and she's always been interested in finding out what we're doing and how things are going with the case um interestingly enough she uh, we just had our family reunion this past saturday and she was there with her husband and her three daughters so my brother never got to see his granddaughters uh, um the oldest of which just recently graduated from high school will be going to college his his wife sharon uh we've my family has continued to remain close with her. She comes to all of our family functions. Um, she never remarried. Um, she, she has been able to compartmentalize the, 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 the tragic event and move on. Um, we don't talk about it a lot, but the fact that she never remarried, I think probably tells you a lot about about how she dealt with that yeah uh, it would be a huge you know decision and uh to do that um and then you know that's different for every person i assume but um it probably also says something about your brother that that he was that important to her and i'm curious not having your your big brother in your, your life for all these years for 42 years um what have you missed most about not having him around yeah, he he was he was kind of larger than life for me. We we were separated by three years, but he always seemed so much older and wiser than that, even when we were younger. And he was he he was he was I would he was very much like a paternal figure, and that's someone that I having never uh, really had a father. That was something that I always missed, and all of our, all of my brothers were were extremely close and always have been. And my second, number two, uh, next oldest brother, he's terrific. And um, but there's there's something about the oldest and having that paternal instinct and being able to go to him and you know just uh, just have conversations about life and growing up and doing things and. You know, when you're when your family is affected by a violent crime like that um, and someone is is ripped out of your life so senselessly, it, it leaves a void. There's no question about it. And you, you have to move on. How has it impacted me the most? Beyond that, I. I it's really solidified how I look at life because. I've always told people that, you know, the best way, the best way to honor those who have gone before us is to continue to live your life and be, and live the life, uh, the best life you can for them because they never got that choice. And I'm here and I, I can make choices. 
And the other thing is tomorrow is not guaranteed. And like my mom always used to say, do as much good as you can for as many as you can for as long as you can. And uh, each day is a gift and look at it that way and tell those people that you care about, that you love, make sure that they know that. Tell them, tell them often because the, the one thing I've never wanted to do in my life is love, never let anything left unsaid. Um, because I may not be here tomorrow. They might, may not be here tomorrow. And losing him like that um, really solidified that in terms of how to live my life, to be honest, Mike. Yeah, that's, that's good advice, too. Um, and you, you still haven't given up hope on seeing that his case is resolved and, there, and somebody's held accountable you maintain a Facebook page about the case. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the page, what it's called and, and the purpose of it so listeners can check it out? Sure, I, I appreciate that. Um, the name of the page is uh, Robert Lamp, Robert Lamp Murder, um, uh, 42 years, still seeking answers. Uh, if, you just, if you just Google, or not Google, but if you just put in the search Robert Lamp Murder, it will take you there. Uh, every article that I could find um, that was written about the case, Washington Post, uh, the Washington Star, um, I posted links there. Um, an excellent, an excellent investigative journalist named Paul Wagner worked with Tom and I uh, for the first six months of this year, putting together a story that he eventually got on TV, chronicling the case. Uh, I posted a link there. And um, there's a place you can you can message me any information that someone might have. I know it's been 40 years, but uh, I'm sure you've seen this also, Mike, in covering these types of things. You never know what one little thing, one little lead might lead to. And and cases do get solved over time. Um, the coldest of cases sometimes get solved just by a stroke of luck. So. I've always said I'm gonna I'm gonna turn over every rock I can to see if there's anything there. And when there's no more rocks, then I'll be done. But for right now, we're still working hard. And I check in with the cold case detective every couple of weeks and we talk about talk about what's going on. And um, we're 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 still holding out hope, Mike. Well, that's that's good advice. Keep that hope out there and keep it going and don't give up because as you mentioned there are cases solved all the time that are old and it just takes the right person maybe somebody that has a little nugget of information and um for them to be reminded and come forward with it maybe it helps break the case and again anyone out there that has information or wants to learn more about uh, robert's case go check out the facebook page and we'll also put links to police uh, contact information in the episode so people can come forward uh and share information with them too. I can't thank you enough, Olin, for coming on to discuss your your older brother's uh, murder with us. Very senseless and very tragic. And I appreciate you helping us uh, get to know him a little bit better. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. And, and uh, I thank you for what you do. You're doing a great thing. Appreciate it. With me 
for this episode is Tom Ponton. He's a survivor uh, in the case we're discussing today. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for having me. You provide a, a unique insight into this case. Uh, obviously, we're, we're covering uh, Robbie's murder, but you were there. You survived that brutal day. Uh, so you have an insight that we don't usually hear from somebody that's actually alive to tell the tell what happened. Can you just briefly walk us through your experience that day and and how that unfolded and how frightening that was must have been for you? So uh, it was Friday, March 27, 1981, um, uh, close to 9 p.m. at night. Two men came in. One of them was wearing a fedora, and uh, uh, the score wasn't busy at the time. There was uh, one checker who was busy at the time. I was also a checker, but because the store was not busy, uh, the store manager, I called him Bob Lamp, and I had working on a display, and it just literally walked up to the front of the store when they walked in. So one walked over to the cashier to rob her, and there was a customer there, and they told me to lay on the floor next to the safe that sat in front of the store. And they instructed Bob Lamp to open the safe and clean out its the money and then to go into the office, which was like a step up and empty that drawer as well. And then they told him to lay down next to me. Um, at that point, there was really silence. I did hear a pop. I heard one say to the other, that was stupid. But to be honest with you, I did not know exactly what had transpired. There was no, Bob Lamp did not make any noise. Um, while I was nervous, I did not know, and I hate to be so ignorant, but I did not know actually what had happened until after I heard them leave, I turned to my left, Bob Lamp was on my right, and I saw them leaving. And then when I turned around to see where Bob Lamp was, much to my horror, I saw that he had been shot in the back and it, it was obvious that there was nothing that we could do. So we Very, called the police and the police showed up and, um, you know, we went from there. Very frightening situation. Um, but how long did the entire ordeal from start to finish take, do you think? Say seven minutes or so. I mean, uh, the robbers were very impatient um, and were, you know, demanding uh Bob Lamp worked quicker than what he was doing. So by no means am I trying to make myself out to be some type of he-man. I mean, I had never been robbed before, but we had been told that generally, you know, when a person comes in, if you do what, you know, you're asked to do, uh, they'll be on their way. And that's clearly what I thought was going to happen. Now, there had been a robbery at the store maybe two months before uh, where a gunman showed up and, and took money from the cashier. I was there that night as well, but he just robbed the cashier and I didn't know that the robbery was taking place until after they had left. And in that case, the cashier did as the robber asked her to do and went on the way. I'm not trying to, to minimize the situation, but I, I almost feel like I don't suffer from PTSD because I didn't know what was happening until after the fact. Was it frightening to learn when you realized that what had happened to, to learn that that happened had happened? And did you realize that that your life and the other people's lives in the store could have been easily taken as well? How frightening was that to think about? Um, well, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I have to give a disclaimer. Um, 
as you know, I've been talking to uh, Olin, uh, the brother of the victim, over the past several months, and there was a TV reporter who did a story on this. So I've talked so much about this that uh, if I'm appearing matter-of-factly about it, I don't mean to. The other thing is, uh, certainly with me, a coping mechanism has almost been to uh, almost deaden uh, my emotions in this case. So uh, that night I went home and uh, went by the police station, actually looked at, uh, tried to give them uh, info for a composite. Uh, and uh, they had me look at some pictures. And that night I went home, my whole family was there and we sat up talking about it for a while. And, uh, you know, I am a Catholic. Uh, I was probably a better Catholic then than I am now. And uh, that night I got on my knees and I thank God that my life had been spared. But in the middle of my prayer, I realized that in Pennsylvania, there was a widow of a 28-year-old who had a two-year-old daughter that was probably questioning that same God as to why her husband's life had been taken away. So I felt a little bit guilty, actually, about thanking God for saving my life when somebody else's life had been taken uh, away then. So the next night, a good family friend, a Catholic priest, came by the house, and he gave me, I thought, was actually very good advice, which is, he said, some things are just a mystery. You could fill your heart with hate. What good would that do? And you just have to go on living your life. And that is what I did. Now, the only bad part of that advice is I pretty much let the case go. I did not really follow up with it. I mean, there were some follow-ups with the police, but I did not track the case. So in retrospect, I actually wished I had of because, well, we might have a better idea of what took place that day. It don't seem odd that the police over the years wouldn't just reach out to you periodically and say, okay, we're we're looking at this suspect or that suspect, or can we show you some mug shots? It, it does seem strange that none of that really happened uh, in this case. So, you know, I talked to Owen a little bit about how it sort of slipped through the cracks almost and, and was sort of overlooked. Um, looking back now, do you get that same kind of feeling from it? Oh, I'm a realist. So I assume that you and Olin have discussed the fact that on the morning of the Grand Union shooting, there was a very highly publicized shooting right up the street at a catalog store called W. Bell, in which a, apparently a beloved Montgomery County police officer had been shot and killed along with a security guard. So the practical realist in me is going to say a police officer died, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out that that's where the police are going to put their resources. I'm not saying that that's right, okay? But it seems to me that that's clearly what took place here. And, and I, I totally can understand that. At the same time, you would think, okay, once they get that case under control, at some point they would follow up on Bob's case, your case, and say, who did this crime, you know, right down the street. And just for all these years to really never have a, a conclusion. Um, it just sort of seems strange to me. Um, and, and I remember the, um, uh, I think it was the DA in this case recently saying, if if these same guys that were looked at in this case were charged today, they, they wouldn't have been charged because the evidence was lacking. Uh, I'm curious, going back now, all this time later, have you looked at the photos of these two guys that they think may have been involved here? and 
said in your mind that these might have been the same guys that you saw that day? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I've done that. Um, yeah, I, I, there was a multitude of questions there. I'm trying to figure out how, how to go about answering it. Look, um, it doesn't take a genius to start to think that perhaps uh, some type of deal maybe was made. I mean, so here's what would happen. I, I really, as I told you, I tried to put this behind me, but every year when March 27th would roll around, I would just think about what had transpired. And I wrote an essay which got published in the Washington Post in 2004 um, about the incident. Now, I didn't get into the mechanics of who did it. It was more about what happened and my uh, efforts to cope with the situation. Um, but uh, it, it just, it, you know, so I would call, and they always said the same thing, that they thought that all of these crimes were related. There had been a shooting at the Safeway across the parking lot the week before. And that, um, so what I was told is that these crimes were related and that the perpetrators uh, more than likely in the Grand Union incident were incarcerated. And I let that go. I was like, yeah, okay. And that's what I was told numerous times when I had placed that phone call. You know, there was a part of me that can't help but think that somehow some type of deal was made in the Grand Union case to try to get to the person who shot the cop. That's just, I'm not angry about that, but it's certainly a suspicion I have. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely some unanswered questions, it seems like. Um, I, I want to shift to, you, you mentioned you sort of went on with your life, and on that date, you would look back and, and sort of have these these memories of that and and what happened but then eventually you teamed up with olin bob's brother um to sort of rehash this whole situation and get back into that can you tell us how that happened and how long you've been working with him and, and what kind of things you guys have done together so on like the very last day of 2011 i got an email out of the blue from olin who had come across the essay that i had written in the washington post in 2004 and he asked if I was the person who wrote it. He had looked me up online and found me and I confirmed it. And in one of his emails to me, he just said, you know, we always wonder what happened that night. And we were curious as to whatever became of the perpetrators. And if you ever have the ability to help us find those answers, being that you live down there, I would deeply appreciate it. So, it took me seven years to act on that. I was a very busy guy in 2011, raising my family and jobs and so forth. So I had a connection uh, to a Montgomery County police official who to this day wishes to remain anonymous. And he came to my office uh, and we sat down and we talked about the case and he gave me a bunch of information. Um, the problem with that is the more you learn, sometimes the more questions you have. So it didn't answer all the questions. In fact, much of what he told me, uh, Olin and I have since um, basically found online anyway. I'm not faulting him. I appreciate the fact that he did come by. But that meeting came about because Olin asked me to do that. And I felt an obligation to Olin. And honestly, I felt an obligation to Bob Lamp who's my last image of him was lying helplessly on the floor at that grocery store in a pool of blood. So that was 2018. And I reached out to Olin and I gave him some information and he responded and said, thank you. 
So honestly, I thought he was a little disappointed that I didn't find out more or that I hadn't done enough. He didn't say that, but his answer was very brief to me. As it turns out, he was going through some times at that moment in his life. And so anyway, this past December, I just so happened to do a podcast on a different subject at a radio station in town. And I saw a guy named Paul Wagner, who I worked with in radio years ago, who was doing a true crime podcast for the local news station in D.C., WTOP. It just so happens he also is a crime reporter on News 4, Channel 4, NBC in D.C. And I reached out to him and he was very interested in the case. And he asked if I had a way to reach out to uh, the family, which I did. And Olin, who is now retired, was more than interested in trying to get involved and to learn what happened. So actually, the three of us, the reporter, Olin, and myself, began trying to unearth as much information as we could about the case. But uh, I still stick with my story. Uh, not that I don't want to find out the truth, because I do, because I've always been curious as to what happened. But honestly, uh, I, I, I got involved in this because Olin asked me to, and I feel an obligation to his uh, deceased brother. So all these years later, how hopeful are you as both somebody who survived this terrible ordeal, but somebody who's helping uh, Bob's brother, Olin, how hopeful are you that you'll see, even if not an arrest, at least a name of somebody officially held responsible, even if even if they're deceased already or they're locked up for some other crime? Is it important to get a name and, and have some uh, finality to this? Well... Both Olin and I know a lot more now than we did, say, six months ago. Um, uh, we have a pretty good idea who the suspects are. Um, but is anything going to come of that 43 years later? I, I'm pretty skeptical about that. Um, a friend of mine who's in law enforcement, when I began this in February, he said to me, he goes, look, I understand why you're doing this, but I don't think you're going to find what you're looking for. And I've had others say, oh, you're looking for closure. Well, you know what? Uh, I don't know if there is such a thing as closure. And as I said before, I've deadened my soul on this issue that I don't need, and Olin and I have talked about it, and I, I don't want people to get angry at me, but I don't even know what I'm looking for here at this point, other than I promise to try to find the answers. Uh, the family, they're definitely interested in, in trying to find out who did it and seeing that person prosecuted. I don't know. I, I, I don't know at this point, honestly, how I feel uh, about that. But it makes sense. For 43 years, they have had to deal with every day the loss of their brother. I went on with my life. And I will say this also. One of the reasons why I went on with my life, if I didn't go on with my life, then if I hadn't been murdered that night, they would have murdered my soul. And I can't have my soul murdered. I, I have to go on with who I am. You know, I, I just do. So I, I'm not trying to be, uh, how should I call it, uh, milk toast about it, but I, I just don't know what we're going to find. So uh, I, I'm still interested and intrigued and certainly willing to help, but I don't know where the answer is going to be. I think either way, you know, Olin has an ally in you and, you know, just the two of you, you mentioned, you know, more than you did even six months ago. So it seems like you you guys are making some kind of progress, and I hope hope you guys keep working together, and that you are able to find out some kind of information, uh, whatever you can gather, and and hopefully at least 
that provides some kind of answers in the case. So this I can tell you because uh, uh, in my my job here, I work at DeMatha Catholic High School. Um, I, I helped a family out who, um, it's a long story, but it was a crime story. And um, myself and others helped that family out big time to try to help them find the truth. Now, the advantage I had in that situation, it was right after the situation occurred. So, you know, the evidence couldn't necessarily be lost in time as as, as it is now. Um, uh, where, where am I going with this? Uh, um, oh, it's this. Uh, if I told you before, there's a part of me that wished that I had been on the police more after it had occurred, because I think that that pressure sometimes forces the police, and I'm not criticizing them, but it forces the police to focus on the issue. So uh, there's murders committed every day, but uh, the old adage, the squeaky wheel gets greased, I think is applicable. So I mean, you do have to be careful about how much, say, one would get involved in a murder case. I understand that. But at the same time, I do think you almost have to be in part your own detective at times uh, to try to lead the police, uh, you know, or to get them to stay on the ball. The crime reporter I'm talking about, Paul Wagner, he told me the same thing. Murders happen every day and, you know, they'll look into a case, but then, you know, they'll get assigned another case. And then, you know, a week or two goes by and I am not faulting the police for that. It's, you know, they're sadly, I mean, these things happen a bunch and their attention will get diverted. So you got to be your own detective at times. You just do. Yeah. So the one thing I got to say, it's just a little verse. So I, I write all kinds of different things, but I think this last verse kind of uh, just uh, expresses my feelings. And it's uh, the answers to life are not cut and dry. And you can drive yourself crazy and questioning why. There's good, there's evil, there's love, there's hate and some fall victim to cruel twists of fate. And I still don't know why Bob Lamp died. I sat down, I reasoned, I've analyzed, and the questions will haunt me to my dying day, why his good life was taken so sadly away. Those are, those are uh, very deep words, and it sounds spot on. Just a, a very cruel and senseless, tragic um, waste of a life. So, um, you know, thank you again for coming on and sharing your experience with us. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.